If you're uh, looking for a healthy New Year's resolution that doesn't require you going to the gym, you might look into joining our church's Bible reading group. Um, we're going to be going through the Bible in a year using the YouVersion Bible app. It's free for everyone, and you can still join that group. There's a link in your email that was sent out the last two weeks, and I, I promise not to tell anyone you joined on day two. It's good to have everyone here with us, and good to have you with us watching online. Uh, just a reminder, watching online is not a substitute for the amazing communion that we have here, but it is a great tool for days like today where there was a winter storm advisory, flights are canceled, people are with family. It's a great tool for those things. Uh, we are starting a new series today called You Are Here. You can see the posters up on the side. You can envision a map with a pin saying you are here. You might see something like that when you go to a mall or go to a park and you're entering and you go to that map and it says you are here and it gives you a sense of guidance on where to go if you want to be over there, wherever that might be. We want to do the same thing, spiritually speaking, in this series. That is, we want to find out where is here in my spiritual walk with Jesus and how do I find out how to get to there if I want to be in a different spot with my relationship with Jesus. In doing so, we want to avoid two extreme lines of thinking. Uh, first could be called overanalyzing our salvation and our relationship with G uh, Jesus, thinking so much about our sin nature, constantly nagging ourselves about how to do more, how to try harder, how to become a better Christian, how to maybe, maybe I need to get baptized more frequently or say another prayer this year that's better than the prayer I said last year so that this year I know for sure I'm on good terms with God. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is to be constantly uh, questioning um, that stance with God. Or sorry, the other extreme is to be so relaxed with your relationship with Jesus that you feel um, kind of a flippant way about his sacrifice for you, thinking something along the lines of, yeah, I sin, but Jesus' blood covers it, right? So what does it matter if I sin a little bit more? That's the other extreme to abuse Jesus' sacrificing and therefore living however I want because God's grace can abound more. Put simply, the two extremes are over-assessing or abusing our assurance. Most likely, uh, you lean towards one or the other of those extremes. What we want instead is to find a balance between uh, sober assessment and a blessed assurance. Our goal in this series is to take a look at the letters written in the book of Revelation and ask ourselves, if a letter was written to me, or if a letter was written to this church, what would it say? What would Jesus have to say to me? Would he write more of a letter of sober assessment or more a letter of blessed assurance? And before diving into those letters, this week we'll start with a passage from John 3. Now, I have the pleasure of giving our first uh, sermon at this church from the CSB. It's one of my favorite translations, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, if you don't have a CSB, there'll be one for you in the seat back or the, the tray in the seat in front of you. And uh, you can follow along with us as we read from John chapter 3. Let's pray. Abba, our Father in heaven, we pray that you would breathe new life in us, that you would let us hear your words today, and that in all things we would decrease and you would increase. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So this week marks my one-year anniversary of my time here at North Sub and the one-year anniversary of my first sermon at North Sub. I remember vividly the thoughts and feelings we had as we packed up our things in Dallas to move, said goodbye to our beloved friends, and we started to drive up north. We had visited the church once already. We already toured the parsonage back there. We drove for hours around Deerfield and the neighboring areas with a sleeping child in our car so that we would know what North Sub was like and what um, the North Shore was like. We thought we had a pretty good sense of what living here was like. We did our research, we spent time in this area, and we were familiar with the church in general um, and where we would be living. But we couldn't truly see what driving over the median, for instance, to get into our house would be like every single day <laughs> until we lived here. Or better yet, taking a left turn outside of the church to get onto Lake Cook. A dramatic shift in our life had to happen in order for us to really see what living in Deerfield was like. And now we know much better after that dramatic shift has happened. It took us being taken away from the life that we knew, uprooted, so to speak, and planted into a new reality to see what it was like to live here. And in a similar way, what we'll read in John 3 is that in order to see the kingdom of God, we must be completely removed from life as we know it and reborn into a new life. Would you turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 3 as I start in verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs as you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now to get an accurate picture of what's going on here, we need to dive into a little bit of the context and find out a little bit more about this man, Nicodemus, and who he is. As mentioned here, he's a ruler of the Jews. What we know about him is that he's a great teacher. He basically represented the best of his nation. He was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, which means that he was a part of this Jewish ruling council. There's about 70 men in this member, or 70 members in this group. They're older, educated, uh, well-respected men who were responsible for the religious decisions of their people and for the civil rule under Roman authority. So, as an older, well-educated religious man, we might be tempted to think that like most of his peers in the Sanhedrin and of the Pharisees, Nicodemus probably wants to trap Jesus somehow. That's kind of their MO. 
But we can tell by his approach that he comes to Jesus humbly. Nicodemus first comes at night. Why would he do that if he wanted to trap Jesus? He could have done so in the day when the conversation would have been more exposed. It would have been public. It would have been where people could hear him. It would have um, exposed Jesus and his conversation. But instead, he comes at night, meaning that Nicodemus wants this to be kept a secret, at least for now. Most likely because he is beginning to also start uh, taking Jesus more seriously. But he knows that that could be a problem for him. Second, Nicodemus starts by calling him rabbi. This shows great humility on his part. As a great and well-respected teacher, he calls Jesus rabbi, considering him somewhat of a colleague. Remember that Nicodemus is much older He's of high status, and yet he's talking to Jesus in his early 30s and calls him teacher, even though Jesus never had any formal rabbinic uh, training. And then he says, you have come from God. Although Nicodemus is only getting part of the picture right here, he at least acknowledges that Jesus is not the enemy. And as many of his peers uh, would suggest that he is, <clears throat> Nicodemus suggests that he is, in fact, at least of God or sent by God. So knowing that he's an educated, well-respected, and older man, we can see that he's humbled himself at least to meet with Jesus in secret and has offered him great respect. One would think that the conversation then is going to go pretty pleasantly. But look at Jesus' response to what didn't even seem like a question. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. A statement doesn't sound like a question. Yet Jesus replies, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This was clearly unsettling to Nicodemus as he reels back asking, how can someone be born again if they're old? Should they crawl back into the womb? But what Jesus is saying is actually even more unsettling than what Nicodemus misunderstood him to mean. At least it's more unsettling to a man like Nicodemus. Think about this. All of his life, Nicodemus' entire education, all of his teachings are for what? To know, to understand, and to educate others about the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him, unless you're born again, you can't even see this kingdom that you know so much about. And not only that, you can't enter. Can you imagine with me for a second being Nicodemus? Imagine spending your entire life studying, practicing one singular thing. Countless hours, late nights, Endless study for one practice to be told late in life, you're not even close. In fact, you need to start over. You need to be born again. Not only was Nicodemus well-educated, he uh, was also just generally a good person. So needing to start over probably hurt him personally. And that might hit home for some of us today. Some of us um, maybe had a radically transformative experience with God earlier in life where 
we realized that we were living a life separate from God, so antithetical to the gospel that we had to turn back and repent and realize our need for Jesus. But some live, generally speaking, good lives, peaceful lives, where we're taught the things of God and we know our Bibles well. But Jesus calls that person to a new life too. The call to a new life to be reborn can be harder to hear if you don't see your need for it. Family, if you've spent your life more like Nicodemus, if you're well-trained, educated, respected, don't be amazed that Jesus calls us to enter the kingdom by being reborn. Now, when Nicodemus questions Jesus, he reiterates this rebirth by describing it as water and spirit. I want to take a minute on here to avoid some confusion on this verse because there's various ways that we can view, especially the water aspect of this. Uh, various views are given to explain what is being meant here, and one of them is dangerous, and that would be that water refers strictly to baptism um, as an essential part of regeneration. It's problematic because it contradicts other Bible verses that make it clear that salvation is by faith through grace alone. D.A. Carson helped me a little bit to see what a more appropriate view of this would be, and it would fall into place if we look at two verses side by side, John 3.3 3 and John 3.5. And if we look at them, we'll begin to see how they fit. We'll see that born of water is uh, in tandem and parallel with being born again. Born of water and spirit in tandem with being born again. And then we see a parallel too that seeing the kingdom of God is being related to entering the kingdom of God. And if we want a little bit more clarity on what this water and spirit action means, we can take a look at the Old Testament, specifically in Ezekiel 36. And there's other passages, but this one most clearly showcases this point. It says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The idea that we get stemming from both of these is that probably the best way to understand what is being said about a birth of spirit and water is that we can understand that a spiritual birth is a cleansing from sin and a spiritual transformation. But so far, it seems as if Jesus is speaking over Nicodemus's head, and maybe ours too. And he doesn't seem to make it any easier when he ends his teaching on the new birth by saying, do not be amazed at what I told you, that you must be born again. And then here in verse 8, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Wind and spirit here in the Greek is actually the same word, possibly adding to Nicodemus's confusion. I mean, look at his response. In verse 9, how can these things be, Nicodemus said. 
How can these things be? You might notice by now that Nicodemus begins speaking less and less. He opens with over 20 words in his beginning remarks to Jesus. And then his second statement is in the lower to mid-teens. And now he is responding with a sentence in the single digits. If it's Jesus' intent to wear down Nicodemus, he's doing a phenomenal job because we actually don't hear from Nicodemus again until chapter 7. I don't think that's his intent, however. I think what's happening here is that Nicodemus is having a dynamic shifting experience with Jesus. Jesus is trying to get into Nicodemus' mind through this interaction that he needs to not see Jesus as just a teacher from God, but the teacher, God. And that's why when Nicodemus is surprised by Jesus' teaching, he comes back with, are you a teacher and you don't know these things? Look at verses 10 through 15 with me. Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses was lifted up, or just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. There is an assumption here in Jesus' line of questioning that teaches, or that this teacher of uh, the scripture ought to know about this new birth. The Old Testament prophets wrote about a new age in which the spirit would do a new work on God's people. We see it in Isaiah 32. This might be a little bit harder to read. I'll read it out. Until the spirit from on high is poured out on us, then the desert will become an uh, orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest. In Joel chapter 2, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. And then uh, Ezekiel, the passage that we just read before, I highlighted this. The sprinkling of water on you, I give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And our Old Testament shows us that God can give people a new heart. Take a look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 10, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you and you will prophesy with them and be transformed. Or in Jeremiah 31, instead, this is the covenant I will make with my house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Surely Nicodemus, one of the great religious leaders of his time, knew these verses. He knows, right, that God's grace can create within us a new heart, a new creation. Well, to give Nicodemus some credit, <clears throat> I don't know that I would do much better without Jesus' teachings. Just as Jesus testifies 
of spiritual things, what we know and what we testify and what we see is what's right in front of us. We see the world, we see material things, and if that's all we can testify to, we're in trouble, just like Nicodemus. We're in trouble because what's in front of us is not the kingdom of God, but mankind trying to work harder, trying to do more. We see morality and religiosity. Every human race left to their own devices do the same thing time and time again. What happens is there's a list of rules. They might be a little bit different, minor differences, but it ends up with morality and religion. But Jesus is calling Nicodemus and us to something much greater than mere morality and religion. He's calling us to be a new creature entirely. Here's how uh, Tim Keller puts it. He says, being born again is not a call to morality or religion. Jesus came to me um, to the most impeccable moral and religious person and said, you need to be born again. He is taking away any excuse. Being born again isn't just for the emotional or the worst cases, so to speak. It's not for fringe Christianity. It's for all of us. Born again to a person like Nicodemus, he's not saying you've done well so far. Let me help you get just a little further. He's saying you've got to go back to the beginning. You've got to start over. What he's saying is Christianity is not uh, an addition to what you've done. It's a completely new thing. You have to start over. And we see the challenge that Jesus presents Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up so that everyone who believes him will have eternal life. Nicodemus would have known that story well. It's recorded in the book of Numbers where the Israelites grow tired. They speak out against God and they're attacked because of it by poisonous snakes in which Moses uh, is given a plan by God to create an image of a snake and hoist it, lift it up. Anyone who is bitten can then look, at, look upon that snake and they would be saved from the devastating effects of the bite. In the same way, Jesus, our ambassador between the image of God and God himself is to be lifted. And anyone suffering in this broken and fallen world might look upon him in belief and be saved. But looking upon him in faith, looking upon him in, in belief, that's the key element. It's not the bronze snake that was lifted up that saved people from being bitten by snakes. It's the faith that they had in listening to God who gave the command to look at it. And his grace to take their repentance and their obedience to save them. In a similar way, you and I can't be good enough to win God's favor. But he sends a beacon of hope to us all. And we're saved if we look in faith to him. And this will be a harder message to hear than for others because like Nicodemus, some people have their life put together, they think. They're the winners of society. But this is why Jesus says that the rich have a harder time entering the kingdom of God because they don't see their need for a God. 
And it's why Jesus says that prostitutes and the needy will be the first to enter the kingdom. Not because they're any better. It's because they tend to desire Jesus more. They see their need. And the big question is this. Why? Why did this have to happen? And the answer is given in our next um, next couple of scriptures, uh, verses. Read with me in verses 16 through 21. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light, of the, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. It's popular in secular circles to think that believing in Jesus makes you judgmental or critical. The thought might sound something like this. How could you believe in a God that condemns everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus? Why don't you believe that there are many ways to get to heaven? My response is twofold. Number one, if there are many ways to get to heaven, doesn't it seem awfully cruel that at least one of the ways causes God to send his son to die? Isn't that cruel to make his son die if there's many other ways to get to heaven? Number one. Number two, God isn't condemning the world, but the world is condemned already. Did you catch that in verse 18? Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not is condemned already. You see, God's heart for you and for me is love. So much so that he gave his one and only son to pay a price that we couldn't so that we could have eternal life. See, God has a rescue plan to save people from condemnation, not the other way around. Now, some people who argue like this against the faith do so in earnest. They truly are searching for answers um, because for them, the faith just doesn't quite make sense yet. I think that's what's happening with Nicodemus here. I think he honestly wants to know more because he wants to put his trust and his faith in Jesus. He just needs to find out the answers to a few more things. I think that's why he came in secret. I think that's why we read later in John chapter 7, the next time he speaks up, he defends Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin while he's on trial. I think that's also why he shows up after Jesus' death to help him with what's considered woman's work of the day, taking care of the deceased body. Something changed in Nicodemus's heart that got him to touch Jesus' dead body to prepare him for burial. 
I think when Jesus met with Nicodemus under cover of night, Nicodemus allowed himself to be exposed to the light of the world and he became transformed. His story changed from that point on. And what we now have recorded in God's word and the best-selling book of all time is that Nicodemus defends Jesus when he's on trial and he takes care of his body after the cross. Nicodemus's works now exposed in the light, so to speak, show what may be done as accomplished by God. The wonderful news about this, however, is actually not even that Nicodemus becomes a better person. In fact, we have no evidence to support that he's any better or worse than he was after meeting Jesus. But we do have a record of his heart's change, of his heart's focus. He became a new person by having a focus bent towards Jesus. D.A. Carson says it like this. This strange expression makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsic, intrinsically superior person. If he or she enjoys the light, it is because all that has been performed for which there is no shame or conviction has been done through God in union with him and therefore by his power. So it's not that Nicodemus becomes a better person. It's not that any of us become a better person. It's that we want to reveal God's work in our life. That's what walking into the light is. Maybe I'm too late to ask you to revisit your New Year's resolution, but as we begin the new year, before you begin to analyze yourself and take stock of the year behind you and the year ahead, be reminded that we can fight an unhealthy attachment to introspection by focusing first and foremost on Jesus Christ and having, being reminded that in him, we have eternal life. We don't have to accomplish everything because it's been accomplished. Jesus came to earth, was born to tell us to be born again through his death and resurrection. And did you know that during Jesus' death, it's recorded that the entire land was covered in darkness? Jesus takes in that spiritual darkness so that we have the chance to live in light. And just as God spoke in the creation when he created light and then separates light from dark, he can do so too in our hearts. Church family, being reborn means turning your eyes to Jesus, living by truth and living in light. And this new birth isn't granted to you by trying harder to get into the light or by knocking down the idols that are casting you into darkness, but by looking up to the one who is lifted high and who destroyed darkness and says, it is finished. Will you pray with me? Lord, 
Will you help us to see when things are dark? Rebirth in us a desire for you and for you alone. And by doing so, separate the light from the dark. May we be a people that live in truth, a people that walk in light through your power and in Jesus' name. Amen.